Good morning, and welcome to the Truth and Love radio broadcast. This program has been a part of the Mid-South for the last 70 years, faithfully overseen by the Getwold Church of Christ. Truth and Love will carry on lifting up the banner of New Testament Christianity today to the Mid-South area under the oversight of the Olive Branch Church of Christ. Please join us now as Mike Hickson opens the Bible and shares the truth in love. In Matthew chapter 21, we have an account of Jesus teaching in the temple. And the Bible tells us that the elders and chief priests confronted him, asking him a very pointed question. They wanted to know, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus then answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. What was it from? From heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. That's found in Matthew chapter 21, verses 23 through 27. In our study today, we want to pose this question. By what authority do you do these things? The question that the religious leaders asked of Jesus was a valid question. Matter of fact, it was a fair question. They simply wanted to know, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Now, oftentimes we talk about the authority of Scripture. Bear in mind that the religious leaders in many ways in the first century were not necessarily interested in divine truth, but many times they sought to ensnare, entrap the Son of God in His words. But the question they ask, I think, is relative, particularly in light of today's religious climate. Our goal ought to be in matters of faith and practice, to be submissive to the authority of Scripture. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 28 at verse 18, Jesus said, All authority, all power has been given to me in heaven and on earth. In Matthew chapter 17, the Bible tells us that Jesus was on the mountain along with Peter, James, and John. And on that occasion, he was transfigured before them. The Bible says that two very prominent Old Testament figures appeared on the scene, Moses and Elijah. Moses, of course, the great leader and lawgiver of ancient Israel, one highly esteemed in the minds of the people. And then Elijah, standing for the great prophets of God who demonstrated courage and conviction day after day in their service to Almighty God. 
Now, it's in that context that the Bible tells us the Father spoke from heaven. God the Father said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, note if you would, hear ye him. What the Father was saying was that we need to be very attentive when it comes to the teaching of Jesus, the Son of God. You recall when Jesus presented what we often call the Great Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7? The Bible tells us that at the conclusion of that prolific sermon, that the people were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one having authority and not as one of the scribes. We're talking about the authoritative word of the Son of God. In Colossians chapter 3 at verse 17, Paul said, Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. What does it mean to do something in the name of the Lord Jesus? It means to do it by his authority, to comply with his will. Now, we're asking the question today, by what authority are you doing these things? Is it not a fair question to ask in terms of religious practices and beliefs? By what authority are you doing certain things? You see, we have a responsibility to make sure that whatever we practice is rooted in divine scripture. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, prove all things, test all things. And the reason? Well, because not everything passes the litmus test of divine truth. And so what, what the Apostle Paul was saying is that we need to put to the test what we hear. We need to prove what we hear in light of what the scriptures teach. He said, hold fast that which is good, which would imply that there are some things that are not good. Do you remember the Bereans of old? The Bible tells us that they were commended by Luke, the ancient historian. Paul and Silas, they had been in the city of Thessalonica preaching and teaching the gospel. They were run out of town. They made their way to Berea. And the Bible says that those in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word of God with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily to see whether those things were so. Note, if you would, that they made a comparison between what they heard and what the scriptures had to say. That obligation rests upon us. And somebody might say, well, why, it's so, why is it so important that I investigate or do my research in matters of religion? Well, to understand that one day we're going to be standing before the throne of Almighty God. And on that occasion, the Lord's going to judge us. The standard by which everything must pass is not what I have concluded in my heart. It's not up to what the multitude says, not up to popular opinion. It's not going to be according to the catechisms and creeds and doctrines of men. 
but rather we're going to be judged on the basis of truth. Listen to Paul in Romans chapter 2 at verse 2. Paul said, we know that the judgment of God is according to truth. Now, somebody might raise the question, what's truth? Pontius Pilate asked that question, and Jesus answered it. Jesus said in John 17, verse 17, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. So what we're saying is there is a divine standard. That standard's going to be opened on the day of judgment. We're going to give an account of the deeds done in the body, as Paul said, according to what we've done, whether good or bad. Now, if you were to turn over to Revelation chapter 20, John pictures that great and final day. And he said, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were open. What books? Oh, the Word of God. That's why it's so imperative for us to ask the question, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? The things that you practice religiously, the things that you believe and espouse. Can you give book, chapter, and verse to back it up? Does it coincide with what Peter taught in 1 Peter chapter 4 at verse 11? When he said, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. That's our goal. In Romans chapter 4 at verse 3, Paul asked, I think, a very profound question. A question that we would do well to ask today. And here it is. What does the scripture say? You know, there's value in going to the truth of Almighty God. Whatever the subject in terms of religion. We need to make sure that it meets a thus saith the Lord standard. Having said that, and getting back to our question, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? When it comes to identifying as a Christian, a child of God, one who is in fellowship with God, do you have authority that backs up your religious belief? You know, there are a lot of people in the world today, if you were to ask them, how do you become a Christian? I know what the vast majority of those in the denominational world teach. They often say, accept the Lord Jesus Christ into your heart and then recite the sinner's prayer. Once you do that, you're a child of God and then just go join the church of your choice. Well, by what authority do they teach that? I mean, can, can you give me some scripture to back that up? Well, you remember back in the book of John, in chapter, well, in John chapter 14, Jesus said to the apostles that they would be the recipients of the Holy Spirit. And he would teach them all things, bring all things to their remembrance. In chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus said, again, we're talking about a conversation that took place between the Lord and the apostles. And Jesus said that the spirit of truth would come and he would guide them into, listen to him, into all truth. Now, let's just jettison forward in time. Pentecost day has come. The church is about to be established. And the Bible tells us on Pentecost Day, Peter and the other apostles stood before a multitude of people in the city of Jerusalem. And the Bible tells us that Peter preached the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
Furthermore, he pointed out that the Lord Jesus Christ had ascended to heaven, and he is now seated at the right hand of the Father, sitting upon a spiritual throne, that is, the throne of David. Bear in mind that the apostles were inspired men preaching an inspired message. Because in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, the Bible says that they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance or directed them. In verse 36, Peter, in his presentation of divine truth, said, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that this same Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. Now, verse 37 is a very important passage of Scripture. The Bible says that when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, pricked in their heart. And they cried out and said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Now listen, that's a powerful question, isn't it? In light of the fact that they were, that they were guilty in many respects of the death of God's only begotten Son. Many of those people had blood on their hands. They wanted to know, what can we do to remedy our sinful dilemma? Well, the Bible tells us that Peter responded. Now again, Peter is an inspired man preaching an inspired message. And so when they asked that question, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Before we comment on this particular verse, I want to go back and maybe look at a passage or two in connection with what we're discussing right now. If you go back and look to Matthew chapter 16, the Bible tells us that Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi. He's in northern Palestine. And on this occasion, he asked the disciples, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And you remember they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Jesus then asked this very powerful question, but whom do you say that I am? And Peter spoke up. And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus then said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say to you, he said, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. In verse 19, he said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Those keys were not only given to Peter, but to all the apostles. You might tie in to that passage, Matthew 18, at verse 18. Keys signify authority, don't they? What the Lord was saying is, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, I'm going to give you the keys whereby you can unlock the doors to the kingdom of the church so that people might enter. On Pentecost Day, we have the apostle Peter along with the other apostles. They're preaching the gospel. Those people are convicted of sin because back in John chapter 16, when Jesus told them he was going to be leaving them, and he said, if I depart, I'll send the Holy Spirit to you or the comforter. And when he comes, he's going to convict the world of sin, unrighteousness, and the judgment to come. It's exactly what happened on Pentecost Day. So they wanted to know, men and brethren, what shall we do? Well, Peter told them. He told them exactly what the Lord legislated 
for people to enter the kingdom. Well, what was that? They needed to repent, number one. Number two, they needed to be baptized into Christ. Now, do you remember what we said about Colossians chapter 3, verse 17? When Paul wrote, whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. That means to do it by his authority. So when Peter, on Pentecost Day, commanded those people to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, all he was saying is that based upon the authoritative word of the Son of the living God, if you want to enjoy the remission, the forgiveness of your sins, number one, you need to repent. And number two, you need to be baptized. Well, why? So that your sins might be forgiven you. Now, I know that there are a lot of people in the world today. They wave off New Testament baptism. Some months ago, there was a lady that came to one of our Bible classes. She came to one of our morning Bible classes at Olive Branch. I never will forget when class concluded, I was talking to someone, and she patiently waited until I finished. She came up to me and immediately said to me, they say you have to say the sinner's prayer to become a Christian, but the Bible says you need to be baptized. And then she went on to say this, my pastor said, all I have to do is say the sinner's prayer and I'll be a, a Christian, a child of God. And then again, she said, but the Bible says. So here's my question to you. By what authority does anyone in the denominational world have to legislate the sinner's prayer? There's no authority for it. You can search the scriptures from cover to cover. You will never read about any person becoming a member of the church you read about in Scripture having recited the sinner's prayer. Now, somebody might race to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 and say, Oh, but John said if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, look, that's good Scripture. But the problem is... John's not talking to alien sinners in that context. He's not talking to people outside a covenant relationship with the Lord. He's talking to people that are in Christ, that enjoy God's second law of pardon. When people are baptized into Christ, they contact the blood of Christ, which washes away all sins. Furthermore, they are added to the body of Christ. And the Bible tells us that those who have complied with the conditions of salvation, who walk in the light as he is in the light, the assurance is the blood of Jesus is constantly at work in their lives. And so if they stumble and fall, the remedy is confess, repent, and what happens? Forgiveness occurs. That's what John said in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. In chapter 2, he would say, My little children, these things I write to you, that you sin not, but... If any man sins, let him know he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The picture here is that of Jesus standing before the bar of heaven pleading our case and the means by which we stand justified in the eyes of God is his blood, that is, the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus. So, if a person hasn't complied with 
the terms of the terms of pardon is that person a christian not according to scripture listen to what jesus said in mark 16 verse 16 jesus said he that believeth number 1 and is baptized number 2 shall be saved number 3 now there are folks in the religious world that will say well you know what baptism is an outward sign of an inward faith. They'll say that you're baptized because you're already saved. Is that what Jesus said? Look again. Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Please listen very carefully. That's not my interpretation of what Jesus said. That's called a quotation. The Son of God placed belief and baptism before salvation. If we want to be saved, we have to put our faith and trust in Jesus as the Son of God. We must be willing to repent of sin, Paul said to those who were present on Mars Hill when he preached about the one true living God. He said, the times of ignorance God winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Jesus said, repent or perish, Luke chapter 13, verse 3, along with verse 5. So we put our faith and trust in Jesus we repent of our sins. Repentance is, a, repentance is simply a change of mind followed by a change in our actions. And then to confess with our mouth what we believe in our heart. Well, what is that? That Jesus is the Son of God. But we're not finished. No, the Bible says that we are then to be baptized into Christ. Why? To be saved, Mark 16, 16. So that our sins might be remitted, forgiven, Acts 2, verse 38 so that our sins might be washed away, Acts 22 at verse 16. Now, here's another thought. Those who comply with the conditions of pardon set forth by the apostles, they enter the church or the kingdom of God. Now, wait a minute, somebody says. I thought we joined the church, or I thought we are voted into the church. In Acts chapter 2, some 3,000 people obeyed the gospel on Pentecost Day, verse 41. In verse 47, the Bible says, The Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. All right, who then are the saved? Well, the saved are those who are in the church. Well, who are in the church? Those who are saved. Well, what did they do to enter the church, to be numbered among the saved? They believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, repented of their sins, confessed his sweet name, and were baptized into him for what reason? So that they might contact the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus. We can't be saved separate and apart from the blood of Christ. And the only way we can contact that blood is to be baptized into Christ because when we're baptized, we're baptized into his death. Now, he shed his blood in death, John 19, 34 and 35. And Paul said in Romans chapter 6, verse 3, Know ye not that all we who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. In Ephesians 1, 7, Paul said, In him, that's in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Now, that being said, I've asked the question, By what authority can you say, you're a child of God. You're a Christian. Can you back it up with the paperwork or what? can you back it up from what the Bible says? That's the paperwork. In other words, that's the deed that shows whether or not we belong to the family of God. 
Let me ask this question. By what authority are you a member of the church that you identify with? Now, again, there are people today that say, well, you know, the church is really not that big of a deal. I mean, after all, you can have a relationship with Jesus separate and apart from the church. Look, that's not what the Bible teaches. And when we ask the, when we ask the question, by what authority are you doing these things? I want, you just, I want you to just think about this for a minute. Did you know that there is not a single denomination in existence today that has God's stamp of authority or approval resting on it? Not a single one. You mean to tell me that out of all these varying religious organizations, that there's just one church recognized by Jesus? Well, don't take my word for it. Go back and read Matthew 16, verse 18. The Lord said to Peter, and I also say to you that you're Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. Two things that stand out here. Number one, Jesus said, I will build my church. That's possessive in nature. The church belongs to whom? To the Lord. But then he said, I will build my church. Not churches, plural, no, he said, I'll build my church. Well, how many churches are authorized by the Lord? Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Paul said, there's one body and one spirit, even as you're called and one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, over all, and in you all. That's Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, all right? If there's just one body, here's the question. What's the body? Back up in your Bible to Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. Paul said he put all things in subjection under his feet, made him to be head over all things to the church. Listen to him. Which is his body? The fullness of him who fills all in all. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. In Colossians 1, 18, Paul said, talking about Christ, he is the head of the body, the church. Well, who's the head of the body? Jesus is. He's the head of the body of the church, which is the beginning. The word beginning there is a very important word. It means active cause, the source from which something came into being. So what are you saying, Paul? He is simply saying that the church owes her origin to Jesus Christ. Well, why? Because Jesus promised to build the church, Matthew 16, 18. You see, he is the founder of the church, but not just the founder, no, he's the foundation. The church doesn't rest on Peter, because if it rested on Peter, it'd be resting upon fallible man. No, the church rests upon the foundation of Jesus. Here's what Paul said. Other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. Furthermore, Paul said in Ephesians 2, that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. Everything rests upon the Lord. So Jesus Christ, he is the founder of the church. He is the foundation of the church. He's the one who built it. He bought it with his blood, Acts 20, verse 28. Now, if Jesus Christ built the church, bought it with his blood, it cost Jesus his divine blood, then wouldn't it stand to reason that it would belong to him? Why would the church in the New Testament, why would it wear any other name than Christ. Now, I can read about the church 
in the New Testament, some 95 times in the American Standard Version, 1901. I can read about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. I can read about the church of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. I can read about the churches of Christ, Romans 16, 16. I can read about the church of the living God, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. But I cannot read of one single solitary denomination in the Bible, not a single one. You know why? Because in the first century, they didn't exist. There was not a single denomination in existence in the first century. So today, in closing, I ask you the question, by what authority can you claim to be a Christian? By what authority are you a member of the church that you belong to? Please listen very carefully in closing. There is a difference in what the Bible teaches and what is propagated and taught in the religious world. Please think about the authority of Christ and submit to his divine will. God bless you. Thank you for listening today. We would love to have you visit with us at the Olive Branch Church of Christ, located at 9100 East Sandridge Road, Olive Branch, Mississippi, 38654. We meet for Sunday Bible study at 9 a.m. Worship is at 10 a.m. Sunday afternoon study is at 1 p.m. Tuesday morning class, Bible class, is at 10 a.m. Wednesday evening Bible class at 7 p.m. Please visit our website, www.olivebranchchurchofchrist.org.